Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. You made the assumption that there's 10 people with machine guns walking through the crowd. Like, that's the only thing that seemed possible. And I looked over at him and I was like, what are you doing? We need to, we need to pretend to, to be dead, right? And I, like, please stop. Like, this is not something we need to remember. Like, I was very confused about what he was doing. And he looked at me with complete conviction and said, no, we're going to find out where this is coming from. We will be getting out of here. And he, what he had done is take a pan and he brought it down and about eight of us watched that. And what you could see because the ground was level is that in fact, it wasn't people walking through. And you could see people pointing kind of up in a way. We certainly didn't know it was coming from the hotel at that point, but we did know it wasn't coming from inside of the grounds. So he said to me, you know, in the next break, we're going to get up and go. Hi, survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad podcast. Yay. Another episode. Another episode. This is a heavy one. But before we get into the episode, Tara, what was I telling you about? You were telling me about Marisol, how she was bossing you up. Yes, she uh, has a little attitude. We have a little attitude problem in the household right now. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And, she's yeah. And you were explaining to me that now she's what seven months, I guess, and she is. <laughs> you told me she's in her bratty teenager years. Uh huh. That's why she's acting up. You know those hormones, those teenagers. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Those teenagers, because now I was trying to eat before we we recorded, and I'm as soon as I go to put a bite of food in my mouth, she barks at me, and she just keeps barking. She just sits and waits on the kitchen floor and watches me eat, and as soon as I get ready to put it in my mouth, she barks at me. <laughs> she wants you to give her that food. C- clearly, but this has never happened before, and then I put her in her little playpen, and she whines. And this is this is all new behavior within the last like week. You know, I've all I've talked about is what a good dog she is and how wonderful she is. And now she's being like a little shit. <laughs> well, I'm sometimes not happy. sometimes it pays to be feisty, Collier. And, and is that a survival mechanism? Yes, it is. Is that fight response? Well, and then she probably just wants food, but Mm -hmm. you know, that's another thing. Yeah. Well, speaking of being feisty, fighting for your survival, who is our guest today? Today we have Ashley Hoff. She is a Route 91 survivor. She created the documentary 11 Minutes. And today is a really hard episode because, for one, gun violence is a really big thing in the US. Yeah. And I don't have any solutions and, you know. You're not alone in that, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. And I I don't really have anything to comment on it because I think just listening to the survivor is enough. Yeah. And, you know, you had a, you know, you were sharing with me and and with Ashley that you were going to, you were supposed to be there, right? Oh, yeah. I couldn't get tickets. My friend Brooke and I were supposed to go, but that night it was crazy because I wanted to see Jason Aldean so badly. And I'll mention it a bit more in this episode, but I wanted to see Jason Aldean because I hadn't seen him. And 
the night of my attack, I was supposed to see him. Uh So I was literally on the edge watching everyone's stories, who was there. All my friends were there. Mm -hmm. I'm part of this country family. And when you're part of this country family, everyone's so close knit and everyone's just loves each other. And it was hard to see that because I would see everyone's posts and then I lived in Vegas as well. So I knew a lot of people that just worked on the strip and mm-hmm. I saw everyone's tweets just go off like shooter, shooter on the strip, shooter yeah, on the strip. Yeah. And no one knew what was going on. So, you know, I can't even imagine what Ashley went through. Yeah. It's wild. Just having those feelings, you know? Yeah. I think the whole, and I remember, you, you know, just seeing it blow up on Twitter and, and exactly shoot on the strip. And I thought, is somebody on the Las Vegas strip shooting people? I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Because Vegas is just such a, it, it, it's such an open place and you can just be everywhere and, and go around and, 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 and I never know, I never know how they keep it as, as orderly and as controlled as they do, but it's all, it always seems to work. And then just to have that, you know, pierce the veil of just, what we think is our safety in in public is just it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking but let you know let's listen to ashley tell us yeah let's get into it let's do it Thank you so much, Ashley, for joining the program. Thank you guys for having me. Why don't you tell us in your own words your story? So uh, the Route 91 Harvest Festival set in Las Vegas, Nevada. My husband and I had gone multiple years. It's what we did to celebrate our anniversary. We're very different people, but have always connected over a love of country music. And truthfully, it was the best festival until it wasn't. I, you know, I have to really shout out the people who put it on. It was an incredible time. And oftentimes when you go to music festivals, you guys know how it goes. You're in the desert somewhere or you're like in, I'm from the Midwest. So our our uh, festivals are like in a cornfield somewhere and you camp and it's dirty and sweaty. This was not that. You got to stay in a hotel. It was really accessible. You walked right across the street to the festival If you didn't want to see a band, you could take a break. If you were hot, you could go back to your hotel or go enjoy the pool. You could go to a nice dinner. You know, there there was obviously so much other entertainment going on in Las Vegas. The artists loved playing there. Like, I'll never forget, you know, every night you would be in the crowd and someone would have that moment where, you know, they'd have everyone put on their cell phone flashlights, right? And you look back and you'd see this sea of, lights with the Vegas strip in the background and it was just beautiful. It was it was honestly such a special time for us. We always had a blast there. Um in 2017, you know, we we had stayed all of the days. We were on the final day of the festival. We had just seen Luke Combs who is now a giant entertainer, huge, perform in a very small tent, a super intimate concert. 
Um, he was newer on the scene at the time and we were having a blast. The weather was perfect. Um, I actually, uh, remember my husband, he had uh, taken a bathroom break and he had come back out and I was waiting. They had all of these like, you know, hay bales sitting around for seating and stuff like that. And I was sitting there, um, drinking a beer and he's like, wow, you just like look like you're having the best time. And I was like, you know what? I really am like, and for me, that's the truth. Like there's nothing better than a warm night, a cold beer and great live music. And like enjoying that with other people who are enjoying themselves. And so he snapped a photo of me. Um, and we actually headed back to the main stage. Jason Aldean was the final performer. And so we, we went back to the spot that we had stood in honestly for every time we had been to the festival grounds and up to the main stage, we were about four to five rows back from the back in the general admission standing area. Um, look, if you're looking at the stage, we were on the right hand side. So closest to Mandalay Bay and the show started. Um, we were watching and enjoying. It was a great energy. Jason has this like great way of never making it feel like it's, it's the end of something like you would have thought everyone would have been exhausted at that point, but he just brought that like fresh energy back to the crowd. And we were a couple of songs in and I remember, I remember hearing some popping noises and I looked over at Sean and said, what do you think that is? Do you think someone brought fireworks in? And honestly, it's, it's a music festival, right? We're in Las Vegas, Nevada it wasn't really that crazy to think that some, you know, idiot brought fireworks in. And he said, yeah, maybe, or we're pretty close to the stage. Maybe it's an amp blowing. And I, you know, we kind of had that conversation and I turned back and he started playing his big radio hit at the time, um, a song called When She Says Baby. And it was truthfully my favorite song on the radio. And, you know, like any good millennial, I, I got out my cell phone and started taking some photos. And I turned back to him to say, oh my gosh, isn't this amazing? And I watched the person directly behind him get shot in their face. And I dropped my phone and I grabbed his shoulders and I, I ripped him to the ground. And he was very caught off guard, right? He's looking at me, so he doesn't see what I see behind him. And I grabbed his face and I said, do not do not turn your head. Someone has been shot and killed behind you and someone in here has a gun. And at that point, Jason was sort of being ushered off stage. Everyone immediately sort of started coming down to the ground. And it was actually really, really interesting. And, and for some reason, like a detail I, I never forget, people started weaving themselves together like a quilt immediately. Um, putting body parts on top of other people's body parts that you knew if they got shot and they were likely to not survive with, with the body parts that you knew if you did, you might. And, and that was an automatic reaction. And so, you know, you often hear people talk about, you know, are, are people born good or bad? To me, that was such a animalistic, instinctual nature to protect each other. You know, it was, it was this sort of notion that, when everything hits the fan, we, our inclination actually is to show up for each other and to protect one another. And I always just thought that that was so beautiful and such a prolifically telling moment. 
Yeah. It, it is. It is. It's almost like the hive mind mentality, right? Of just like, okay, we're, we're in a situation. It's interesting because there's, you know, there's a saying that goes, you know, a person is rational, but people are not. Well, and they say, you know, when trauma, when something like that happens, you, it's almost as if your, your brain already has a, your fight, flight or freeze. Right. And so it's interesting that if, if our notion is that we, we don't even really have our, our wits about us, that we, if we, if we launch into automatic action, our automatic action actually was to protect each other. I think Tara can relate to that for sure. I just want to say it's so great that that happens. And especially like when you go to a country concert, it's a different type of community. And it's a community that wants to have each other's backs. And I've never, well, I've seen like a couple of fights at a country concert, but that was abnormal, you know? And they're usually over the fact that somebody brought Keystone Light and not Bush. Or like drank um... too many of said Keystone Light, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, but it's a beautiful community, and I just remember, like, losing cell phones at country concerts and them always getting found and brought back, and it's like, you wouldn't expect that at a rave. No, and it's it's interesting that you bring that up. You know, we've I've talked a, a lot about that with people, that that festival was, it was just so friendly. You know, you, you really did go to the same, uh, I've talked to hundreds of survivors at this point. And I'd say 90% of them always talk about going back to the same place every single show because they had made friends with the people around them. And it's the kind of friends that you were like, oh gosh, I got to go to the bathroom or I'm going to go grab a snack or a drink or whatever it might be. And they held their spot for your spot for you, you know, and it wasn't like, oh, I'll do it. It was like, you maybe came back an hour later and they were still like holding the grounds for you and everybody else around them understood what they were doing because you had all gotten to know each other. So it, you know, by the time you're at day three, most of those people around you are people you're, you've gotten to know a little bit and that you're more than likely going to stay in touch with. So, you know, I think that even makes the moment that all of, you know, everything changed a little bit more personal, even in some ways, you know, I think it's perhaps a part of why, you know, a little bit of that inclination of like protect or help, you know, became a, a presence because you, you knew your neighbor at that point. Um, but we were, we were down on the ground for about three rounds. Um, my, I looked over and uh, I saw my husband, we actually both work in television and he had his cell phone and he was doing this with it and his head was down. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what are you doing? At, at that time, Jason's mic pack was still hot. So the sound was so loud and felt so close and all encompassing because it's coming over every speaker in the place that you made the assumption that there's 10 people with machine guns walking through the crowd. Like that's the only thing that seemed possible. And I looked over at him and I was like, what are you doing? We need to, we need to pretend to, to be dead. Right. Like, please stop. Like, this is not something we need to remember. Like I was very confused about what he was doing. And he looked at me with complete conviction and said, no, we're going to find out where this is coming from. We will be getting out of here. And he, what he had done is wow. take a pan wow. and he brought it down and about eight of us watched that. And what you could see because the ground was level is that in fact, it wasn't people walking through. And you could see people pointing kind of up in a way. We certainly didn't know it was coming from the hotel at that point, but we did know it wasn't coming from inside of the ground. So he said to me, you know, in the next break, 
we're going to get up and go. And I'm saying. So when you say break, you you had said mm. three rounds. So does that, are you talking about like he had yes. re, the, the reloading process? So it was, I'm assuming it was a high capacity magazine. So 30 rounds probably were fired. Yeah. So he, he had um, dozens of guns that he had brought into that hotel room. Um, about, uh, I, I want to say it's close to 7,000 rounds of ammunition. Wow. Total. Yeah. So he ended up dispersing about 1,100 rounds during those 11 minutes. And they found a little over 5,000 rounds still in the hotel room after, after he, you know, subsequently took his life and the SWAT team was able to come in. So, you know, just a, uh, good idea to let, let anyone know that like that, that action was so important and the swiftness of it and figuring out where this person was in the scale of this building, you know, we so lucky that, you know, Jesus Campos uh, was able to, you know, locate where that was and call down and really alert the SWAT team and the Las Vegas Metro PD about that location because it, you know, it, it could have been five times worse. And, um, uh, you know, thank, thank God they were able to, to stop it when they did. But yeah, so he would, he would, uh, he had used bump stocks on a lot of the guns. So some of them, you know, dispelling, I believe between, you know, 30 and a hundred rounds at a time. Um, and there would, there would be a moment where he was reloading or switching weapons and there would, there would be a brief pause. Sometimes it was, you know, 20 seconds. Sometimes it was a minute. Um, he also did when, uh, he had cameras on a cart outside of the room so he could see down the hallway. So when um, Jesus did enter the hallway, he was able to see him. So there were 200 rounds that were also dispelled into the hallway. So um, it, it was a, it, there, you got to, as we were on the ground, you, you noticed a rhythm, right? You noticed that there was these breaks. And so he said, when there's a break in the shooting, we're going to get up and go. And I was saying, you know, the words I could remember to every prayer that I had ever learned in my life. And there was a woman who was on top of me and she said, no, we need to stay down. I'm a, I'm a former first responder and we need to stay down. And truthfully, that's the, that's the closest to a professional opinion I had at the moment. And I was with her and he looked at me and he repeated himself and said, when there is a break in the shooting, we will be getting up to go. There is one of two things that happen here. And I would like for us to try to get out of here. And I really recognized at that moment, um, you know, not in a, in a controlling way, but he was, he was convicted and he, I saw that he had a plan and truthfully, I did not. And I knew that we were, this is what we are going to be doing. Um, it was not a, do you want to, it was, this is what we will be doing. And I am, I'm so grateful because that's not, honestly, that's not where, where my head was. I am also, um, I, I'm a, uh, people pleaser by nature. I am a, <laughs> I am very, I am your typical Enneagram two oldest girl, child of the family, all, all of the things add up to, I'm, I'm real worried about what's going on around me as well. Um, and so I, I saw it in his face and I knew that it, it really didn't matter what I thought. In, in all honesty, we were, we were going to get up and go. And I'm, I'm so glad that he had that conviction and that we made that choice. You know, if you look at the map of what happened around us, you know, they've, um, they've deemed that area uh, disturbingly the killing zone. It was... Um, 
it was where a lot of lives were lost and i'm i'm so grateful we got up to go when we did and so we looked at each other and we said the things the things you say in case you never get to say another thing and that you hope that that person will pass on to your family and we said the things to the people around us that we hoped that they would be okay and when there was a break in the shooting he uh again there was people on top of us right so he grabbed my arm and sort of pulled me up out of the people and the first thing that happened was my boot got caught under someone and i tripped and his momentum tossed him about 10 feet away from me and easily the the worst to me the worst part of the night was was that moment we spent the next round watching each other about 10 feet apart and you're you're helpless you're you're absolutely helpless and you you are critically aware that you may watch a person that you love very much be killed in front of your eyes and and there's just there was nothing to be done about it and so we we made it through that round we got up we began running um we the the general admission area where the turf was uh there was turf in that area excuse me so once we got out of that area and onto the cement uh i can only describe it as an ice skating rink you know twenty thousand people had dropped their food and drinks everywhere and cowboy boots as it turns out are very very bad running shoes and so i started slipping and falling immediately and i felt like i was slowing us down so when the shooting began again there was a cement barrier between the vip area and that general admission we tucked behind there we pulled a couple of girls in and we we ducked down inside of that and i took those boots off um after the next round we made it to some porta potties which we ducked inside for a round terrible idea very echoey we always have a moment where where that we talk about where you know you look back and um there's these moments that are very strange that happen between people and i'll never forget us having a very clear conversation in that porta potty that if this was our last moment on earth that we were not about to die in a porta potty bathroom like there was a, a a negotiation yeah there was a negotiation that went down of like should we stay are we safe are we hidden in here are we even protected from bullets in this plastic and then a very logistical conversation that that is not where or how we wished to be found if this was our last moment on earth and it's terrifying right because you're you're behind a door now and you don't know what's on the other side of the door so we decide we're going to open the door and at that point we begin running about we ran for about three and a half miles down the strip taking cover here and there along the way behind cars ducking into places um but you wanted to get away the the rumors had started swirling that there were multiple shooters in multiple hotels at that point people who had been shot were wandering into the hotels and when they're seeing people shot they're calling it in and the police are having to make the assumption that there's a shooter inside of those hotels so they're they're preparing for that and you know there's a rumor that there's a bomb in a van outside of the excalibur we're grabbing people in shock along the way telling them to run and we get down you know past where the planet hollywood is and someone stopped us and said you know there's medical attention inside i had jean shorts on so i had road rash on my legs and it was bleeding and we were apprehensive to go inside but honestly it medical attention seemed right it seemed safe weirdly that like if they were going to set up there that perhaps that was safe so we ducked inside of of that area it was kind of like a 
there was a condo complex next door to it that was part of Planet Hollywood. It was it was this odd sort of hybrid lobby area. And there were a couple of girls who their cell phone had died. I had a portable charger on me. I was helping them. Their friend, they had lost their friend who had gone to the bathroom. And I said to my husband, I said, I dropped my phone and I can only assume 20,000 people have stepped on it at this point. Um, please start calling everyone in my family until someone answers and then tell them they have to call everyone else. Because if the Midwest starts waking up to this news and calls this phone, some, someone will have a heart attack. Um, because it's going to go straight to voicemail. And so he was, uh, he had gotten a hold of my father and I was helping these girls and um, I'll never forget. And I hold on to it uh, like just so tightly. I, uh, I was standing there in complete shock. And I, I think I was just standing at this point. Um, and I felt someone touch my arm and I looked down and there was probably an eight to 10 year old girl standing there. And I said, oh my God, you know, snap, like snapped out of it immediately. And I was like, oh my gosh, where are your parents? Like you need to, this is an unsafe situation. You need to get to your parents right now. And um, she pointed up at the TV screen and it had just started to land on the news because like on that side of the strip, no one knew what was going on. Like it, it, like we were informing them. And so she pointed up and it was, it was starting to be on the news. And she said, I'm so sorry that someone did something so bad for you, so bad to you. I'm I'm going to pray for you. And it was this like weird moment where it's like the fog lifted. And I remember kneeling down and and just looking at her and, and saying, you know, thank you for what you said and who you are. And I hope you are this for the rest of your life. Like you brought me back from where I was, but you, where are your parents? And she pointed over to the check-in desk and I said, you got to go over to them now, but thank you. And at that moment, someone dropped, I don't know if it was a glass and I, I still don't know what it was, but uh, it hit the ground hard, made a loud noise. People yelled, shooter, shooter. Everyone scattered and started running again, as did we. And we saw two people go into the parking garage, uh, which was on the second floor. And I said, we, we need to follow them. And Sean said, no, we need to get outside. We need to get away. At this point, we think the only comparison that we have at that moment of what we think might be going on is 9-11. We, we do, yeah, we, we, we think we're in the middle of a terrorist attack. And he said, you know, we need to get out of here. We need to get away. And I said, no, there's only one reason you go into the parking garage is because you have car. And we follow, we, we chase this couple. Um, who did get into a car and we threw our bodies on top of their windshield and the man got out and rightfully so he was not thrilled about this uh, get off of my car and we said I know you don't know us but there is a terrorist attack happening and you could save our lives we need to get away we all need to get away from the strip as fast as we possibly can please let us in your back seat and God bless these two strangers. They had been checking in. They had just come from dinner. They had no, no idea what was going on. And we are, I mean, we, we uh, honestly look probably like we walked out of the show, The Walking Dead. You know, we're bloody and dirty and tired. And um, they opened their, their doors and they let us into their backseat. And we drove off the strip with these two strangers. And the wife, um, who I now know is Jackie and her husband, Ben, they began to conversate. We, we asked them to turn on the radio because, again, we're, we're, 
we're kind of scary to them at this point, right? Like we're giving them a lot of information that seems pretty wild. And, you know, I wouldn't have blamed them if they wanted these two people out of their backseat, probably ASAP. And so we, we had them turn on the radio and it, it started to be, be on the radio. And so I think it settled in for them what was happening. And she, Jackie looked at Ben and said, I, I think we should just go home. And I said, you know, where's home? Did you travel far? And she said, we're from Ontario, California. And I said, I will, I'll give you every dime we have if you just let us ride home to Ontario. Like we can get an Uber from Ontario. I know you don't know us, but I, I hope, I hope you understand a little bit about what we were saying now. And, um, you know, God bless them. They let us ride home to Ontario with them. And, and we listened to the radio the whole, whole way home. And we, um, we stopped in Barstow to get gas and to use the restroom. And I, uh, I remember opening the car door and just, it, it wasn't until, I mean, that was hours, however far Barstow is from Vegas at that point, hours later, just screaming bloody murder because it was the first time I, my body had come down enough to realize that my arm was broken. And, and it was just from falling, you know, and honestly, I don't, I don't think about it. I, you know, I, I knew from moment one that that, um, that was a lottery win compared to what we had just seen. And yeah, so we, we, um, we, they dropped us off at a hotel in Ontario. We, um, called an Uber. We got home around seven thirty in the morning. I went to Cedars in town the next day and, you know, then we, started a, a very long, you know, journey of, of healing and figuring out what it meant to be a survivor, you know, and figuring out also what had, what had transpired that night, you know, that, that next morning was the first time we heard what had actually happened there, which was so shocking to take in. Um, you know, you, it's still sometimes when I think about it, it seems like this very strange Un- unbelievable dream of sorts but it uh i remember that next morning and just feeling so surreal knowing that you were there but watching watching it being told back to you and and it felt impossible it, it, it truly felt impossible that one one person had the ability to inflict this kind of pain and chaos it, and onto thousands of people um, it was, it was wild. Um, and yeah, I ended up going back to the Midwest for a while. I think my, my family needed to see me as much as I needed to, needed to see them. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's probably, gosh, the, the part of, of figuring out that I, I wanted to share the story came later. Um, I think as a, I was a storyteller for a living. I, I ran a, a, I helped oversee a development department um, at that time. And mostly I, I was sitting back and watching the story unfold, right? And I was pretty shocked that for this big headline, you know, largest mass shooting in American history, it felt like it was out of the news within a week. And it was on to the next hard headline. And then as as time unfolded, it felt like the point of view that most often when explored was that of the worst person there. How'd he do what he do? Where was he from? What was his childhood like? 
I knew what he had for breakfast at Starbucks that morning. I'm like, why, why do I know so much about this person when that's nothing that has nothing to do with what I remember from that night. I remember bearing witness to some of the most incredible accounts of humanity I, I ever will. And that's, that's what I held on to things like that, that quilt or the people that I saw helping. I just, I can only describe it as feeling like I was watching angels on earth and it, it sat on me, but I also was honestly unwell. You know, I, yeah. I, uh, I was figuring out all of the feelings that go along with dealing with something like this while also having a, a physical reminder for eight weeks that that happened. And, you know, you're also dealing with it with another person, which is a, uh, you know, you're that you're dealing separately, but you're all, it also happened to you together. So that's, that's a whole thing that you go through. And, um, and weirdly in the middle of all of this, all I could think about was the cowboy boots that I took off when I was running. I became absolutely obsessed with them. Obsessed. Um, to be clear, they were $20 from Buffalo exchange. They had no, not one ounce of meaning other than they were cute boots that were already worn in and comfortable, but I got a Buffalo exchange. Not good for running in. No, terrible for running, terrible for running, yeah. but I couldn't, I couldn't let them go. And I, uh, I, I had my best friend from high school who lived in Vegas. He went to the warehouse. He looked for them. They weren't there. He put me on the phone with an FBI agent who proceeded to tell me that a lot of items had been either damaged or, um, they needed to be cleaned. And so that, um, they had sent them off for cleaning and there would be, um, a catalog that would be done someday. Um, and that they would send me a link to it. Um, if I wanted to place a claim and I, in my state of shock and sheer hadn't slept in days, I, I, and I feel bad about it to this day. I, I started laughing. I, I, and the woman was like, what are you laughing at? I was like, I'm so sorry. You are the FBI and you have very, very big things to deal with right now. And in general, I, I just don't like, someone's going to catalog my boots from like this. No, like, no, that's, that's absurd. When we hear about the FBI, you hear about very serious work, right? And so this felt like this is this feels weird. Um, but I placed the claim, I then proceeded to spin out for months on end, figuring out who made the boots. I tracked down a pair on eBay that were two sizes too small and ordered them why I have no idea. Um, and uh, joke was on me. Uh, about eight months later, I was sitting at my office and a ping came through to my email from the FBI a catalog full of thousands of items. Uh, if I recall right in the first version of the catalog, it was 77 pages of shoes, five pairs on each page. And there on 56 were those stupid cowboy boots. Oh my and gosh. Um, I placed a claim. And a month later, an FBI agent brought those boots personally to my home. And it took me about one second as I opened that box to understand why I couldn't let go of the boots. They were, they were the last part of me that was in that field. Um, and they got to come home. And additionally, although they were certainly responsible for me breaking my arm, they were a part of my life-saving miracle. The only thing that separated any of us that night was inches on the ground and how our bodies were. And if I wouldn't have fallen three times, who knew where I would have been, where my husband would have been, where those girls behind the barrier would have been, where everyone we stopped to help 
along the way would have been. And they deserve to be somewhere better than in a trash pile. And as a nosy journalist, I, I did what, uh, what I uh, can't help doing. I, I started asking Debbie about her job. And I said, I, I literally can't believe you're here. And like, this is, how did, how did you even get this job? I'm also critically aware, right, that she, yes, I'm having a moment of closure. And in some ways, this weird intersection of joy and sadness but she delivers things back to people whose family members are are no longer here to receive them. And that's a superhero status that I, I don't even know how to describe. And she explained to me that this division of the FBI was created to specifically do this. It's made up of volunteers from other units who go through special training, both um, active shooter training and um, emotional training to do this. And they're, you know, there's a basically a fund that funds their them to be away from their desk for a day here and there to do this type of, of work. And I just, I thought it was so warm and I was, I was so happy that it existed and I was so simultaneously mad that it had to exist. It's quite the paradox, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. And like to have the wherewithal to understand that these items were not just items in the snap of a finger they went from extraordinary ordinary to extraordinary excuse me they you know they became someone's flag of survival they became someone's closure they became someone's last something of their someone potentially and they mattered they mattered and i found myself back in the catalog when i got in the house and when i reopened it and i looked at all of those items i saw them so differently i i wasn't just looking at items i was looking at an incredible human being story from that night. And I, I knew there was more to share. And I felt that thing as a storyteller, it's a, that churning in your gut that's somewhere between butterflies and I'm going to puke immediately. And I, I knew that I, I wanted to try to pursue telling, telling the story, the story that I remember and held on to the light that was in the darkness that night. And you know, it was a long journey of development and talking with people about it. And I, I really wasn't quite ready there yet. Um, but it evolved. And that that really was the basis of, of the start, you know, of, of what became 11 minutes. But it, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible to, as a creator, take your pain and turn it into purpose, but also just truly, yeah, the most useful I've ever felt as a producer also to get to be there for people and be a leader in a way to help them feel safe and supported if they felt called to tell their story forward. I'm, I'm a person who believes in reason and the unreasonable. And I believe a part of the reason I was there is maybe because I was a storyteller. And I, I knew that there were other people out there who felt like they got given it for a reason. And so to be able to help them share that and now to watch it ripple out into the world and and create change and awareness and healing and closure and so many other emotions it's man it's it's just uh it's amazing it's, so, it, it's fulfilling yeah, it's and it's also yeah. it's just um yeah i i it's an indescribable it's like over it's like a an elephant of overwhelming is what it is because it it you never know when you create something if it'll if it'll have the effect that you hope it will. You know, one one person could have watched it; that would have been enough. 
Um, but now millions have, and to know that it's creating awareness about what it, and, and empathy and understanding of what it means to go through something like this is, is, yeah, it just feels important. Well, I just have to say, I have a lot of friends that reposted it. I have a lot of friends that were there that night because I'm, well, I was supposed to be there that night, but it was sold out. And, um, you know, I got stabbed a year before, a year and like a couple months before, and that was going to be my first Jason Aldean concert because I got stabbed before his concert. And so I was like so bummed I could not go. And I had friends that were, you know, posting about it and then they started to post about the shootings. And Mm. so I felt like, you know, of course I can ever be in your trauma or anything, but I just felt like I was like, I can't imagine being there that night and going what you guys went through and I think that your journey is just incredible and I'm so happy you're here to help narrate and tell those stories because my some of my friends are not ready to talk about well a lot of my friends are not ready to talk about it and they come to me and we have our private conversations about trauma and you know but just you doing your documentary i've seen so many posts like so many posts about it from those survivors and you have no idea what you're doing for their story and like just making it validated and everything and i just cannot thank you enough because for me it's like you're helping my friends too thank you for saying that yeah no 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 i'm 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 emotional <laughs> oh, and then this jacket sent, signed by Jason Aldean. So I had to wear it for the interview today. I like that. I like yes. that. <laughs> well played. No, it's um, you know, I if I if I'm really honest, I I uh, I felt uh, I I felt a lot of pressure. I I put a lot of pressure on myself when um when I was doing this. When you tell when you choose to tell a story of of this nature. Um, especially one that's a memory that belongs, an actual memory that belongs to so many people, right? It's, um, there's pressure to get it right and to do it with the most integrity. And, and we, this particular piece, um, stylistically is, is very immersive, right? We were at a concert and, and just like I did, you know, most, a lot of people had their phones on. And so there, there really is footage you know we're in actual people's footage for a lot of the documentary and and it feels you know it feels very personal because of that I think and very close and I when you know the trailer came out and things like that I I was I was really very nervous because I what I would never want to do is to hurt someone who uh, further who is already hurting um, or to re-trigger someone. And so, you know, we worked a lot, you know, our, our network partners were fantastic and, and uh, we worked with Susan Zarinsky who has done uh, a lot of incredible pieces um, that have been pieces that have focused on hard parts of our nation's history and really on the personal narratives of, of those events and so, you know, it was never a question of whether or not each episode would have a trigger warning, if there would be one in front of the trailer, things like that. And I was so glad it was on a streaming service, if I'm honest, because it it meant people would have to seek it out. It never, 
I never wanted someone to be flipping a channel and landing gunfire. Like it is sure. the sounds yeah. bother me. So I, 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 I wouldn't want that for myself, let alone anyone else. And I, I remember, you know, thinking when I saw the trailer, if I'm honest, you know, it, you give your piece to a marketing department, right? And it is their job to figure out how they are going to get people to watch this piece. They're professionals at it. And when you see something that you've watched in a four hour increment, that is very, you know, it is against hard to watch at places, right? Because it, it is, it, it is a, it's a mass shooting. It's, it's hard, hard to watch. Um, but also when you're getting it in that three minute, you know, sort of trailerized version of it, it took me back and I, I wondered if it was going to take other people back. And so I, I had made a, a very public post to the survivor community. A lot of people knew that I was doing it at this point and, and just said, you know, this material is going to be out here and please be aware of it. You know, if this is anything in this area can be triggering. So please know it will be here. Um, and there will be press about it in the days to come. And additionally, I always want to make it very clear that my stance is this, there's no right way to go about healing from something like this. There's, there's no guidebook on it and there's no one way. And so this, this is, was a part of my healing journey and the other interviewees healing journey and we hope we we could only hope at that moment that it would be a part of survivors healing journeys but not everybody is going to be in a place to watch this or want to watch this and that is something i 100% support i i will never make a post that is oh my gosh go watch this i it will always be watch this if you can and feel called and if you do so please do so out of with grace and respect to yourself and the and others around you right and and if it gets to be too much stop like don't do it for me don't feel it do it because you feel like you you should or you should be there or you have to if it feels right it feels right and i support where anyone is at in their journey but the overwhelming amount of people who have said this has helped even after five years start a conversation for them or pull them out of something five years later it it is that that to me is you know i i i I feel humbled that we got to be a part and and so privileged to be a part of the vehicle that is is doing that or it's you know people's spouses or family members who said they never understood what their loved one went through and never could conversate about it now having a conversation therapists writing in and saying, I work with first responders, this helped me understand my clients better, or, or simply, you know, this helped, you represented our story, and we feel seen and remembered, and, and those lost are seen and remembered, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, if it was only one of those, it would have all been worth it, but it's, it's, it, it, so beautiful to see how it's touching hearts. It really is. There's nothing more rewarding than using and channeling your artistic abilities to craft a narrative, to bring light to something 
and try to turn a negative into a positive, right? So, yeah. you know, I was, I was very obsessed for, for a long time with, you know, the consequences of violence, right? And that's, mm -hmm. that was one of the impetuses for me coming out and telling my story. And, you know, I find that just like you, the audience that it seems to reach is not always your intended audience. It's this, it, it's, you know, I was always uh, talking about like ancillary victims, but there's also ancillary audience members, right? Yep. That have been through a different type of trauma that find solace in what you're talking about and go, oh, okay, well, I have, you know, I have a lot of people that reach out to me that are, you know, SA survivors, right? And I, I, you know, I don't talk about that. And that's not really, that's not what it's about the murder of my mother, right? Even though my father had had committed sexual violence against my cousins, the, the way that these stories land on people, it's so, it is really humbling and surprising and, and also heartbreaking too, because you hear their stories and you go, I'm so sorry. But then they go, no, you've given me hope. You've inspired me. You know, I set out to change, you know, sort of change my life and affect one person. And instead of being tens of thousands of people that have reached out since my film came out. Right. I think too, you bring up such a, a great point, which is that after, after something happens immediately, right. You're, you're in this, you're in this state of emotional distress as, as you should be. And, and that looks different for everybody. Yeah. But you've got, you've got media, especially an event like this, all around. And, you know, I, I really heard um, really early on, and I, you know, I had experienced some of it myself. Uh, a lot of people got asked to share their story or talk about this event before they had even had an opportunity to process. Oh, yeah, of course. How they felt about it or, or how they wanted to share it or even if they wanted to share it. And it was critically important to me, you know, because there, there are, as you both have shared, there's a lot of people who are, you know, either not in a place where they want to talk about it or, yeah. or perhaps they, are, want, they wish to pretend it didn't happen. If I'm honest, I, I, I uh, worked on my own mental health a lot because, it, you, again, you take on a story like this. You, yeah. there, there's a 100% chance that someone's coming to suggest that you're being exploitive. And I, even though we took much care to talk and work with, to, to release a all materials we used appropriately, but also to talk with people and to share stories from people who are willing to do it. And, and I, you know, someone was in that room with them or in that zoom room with them as we were also filming this in the middle of COVID, you know, saying, I don't know everything about what you've been through, but I know a little bit about it. And if you need a break, if you need whatever you need and also to be there and, and be vulnerable. You know, if I felt called to cry in the middle of someone's story, I did it. And I had a, a crew who supported that vulnerability on my behalf. But I think it also allowed all of those other folks from survivors to police officers to first responders to feel like they could be emotional in return. And so I think, you know, the, the interviews felt emotional because of that. Because it was a safe space. You created a safe yeah, space. Yeah. And you have to, and you got you to gotta hold tight to your why and your reason. You know, again, when that trailer came out, if I'm honest, I was like, what, what did I, what, what, sure. this is felt very, it felt dramatic, right? Because it's, it's a lot of, of your piece in a very tight knit, you know, package with music that is riveting and maybe not what you would have, have selected. And, 
And I remember a fellow survivor saying to me, I was like, it just feels a little more dramatic than I wish it would have. And, and, you know, she's like, it's marketing materials, Ash. She's like, it's dramatic because it was a mass shooting. It was pretty dramatic. It's also, of course, it's hard to watch. It was really hard to live. Yeah. And I, I think I was so totally um, inspired by the words, uh, honestly, that Matthew McConaughey and his wife Camilla spoke after the Uvalde shooting as they held those shoes and said, you know, we've got to, we've got to stop turning away. You know, we get in these stories for a day, a week, and we feel, and we feel so much. And we, we talk on, on social media and, and we, maybe we advocate. And then all of a sudden a week later, you know, a new hard headline happens. It's a, it's a hurricane or, or, or some other tragedy. And, we're on to the next and we never take the time to sit in the previous story and recognize what our fellow human beings have been through. And so that's, I mean, that's why it was so important to us going through a narrative approach because I know I was naive. I thought this was stuff that happened, scary stuff that happened to people on the news. Did I think it was going to realistically be my story? I prayed for those sure. people. I felt terrible, but did I think it would ever be something that happened to me? No. But the truth is, is it happens to Ashley's and Natalie's and Jonathan, you know, it, it, these are people, these are our fellow humans. And we have to take the time to understand what they've been through, empathize and, and truly sit in it so that change is created because nothing changes if nothing changes and yeah. moving and on to the next. changes if you stay silent yeah. either. No, that was, you know, that was one of the impetuses. It's interesting to hear you say that in 2022, we have this obsession with these events and you say like the bad guy goes to jail the victim is dead the the state gets its restitution the gavel hits and we say next and yeah. that was like my motivating factor my whole life i'm like there is more to these stories yeah the, the consequences of violence the the ramifications on ancillary victims on non non-combat ptsd things of that nature that just gets swept under the rug with whether it be by another headline, whether it be like it's just a passing fancy for people. And I actually feel like nowadays it is way more in fashion and to share those stories. Whereas before I felt like nobody was talking about that. It was just all yeah. about the crime. What I found interesting that you said a while ago was you were talking about how they, they were discussing on the news like, what this person ate for breakfast. You know what he ate for breakfast at Starbucks. Was he a damaged child? Was he this? Some people are just born good or evil. And I had to realize that with my father. Like some people, there's no justification for their behavior. They're a psychopath. They're a sociopath. They're a narcissist. Whatever that abusive behavior is. And I feel like this gentleman was that. I mean, 7,000 rounds of ammunition. And then how do you get in a hotel with all of that? You know... I mean, it's a, it's a combo factor, right? He's a person who identifies as a high roller. It was over the course of time. I mean, actually, you know, it, as I, we talk about it, my crew talked about this often, the number of times we walked into Las Vegas hotels over the course of filming this with giant equipment cases that no one, no one ever stopped us and was like, yo, what are you doing with that? You know, like it's, we're so used to, especially in a place like that, seeing people move around with like transient bags that no one was like, oh, I bet I saw that dude walk in with two bags yesterday. It's never, I'm never totally, I, I'm a little, the ammunition always throws me off because I feel like that's got to be heavy. 
And I do, you know. Oh yeah, ammunition is very heavy. Seven thousand rounds must weigh a, a couple hundred pounds, I would imagine. Yeah, if you're a valet person and you get asked like to bring someone's bag up and they're giving you a tip, like I'm like, I guess no one's like, oh gosh, like your bag weighs a little too much. Like, and you don't know. Like when we walk into the airport, no one, I you know, like at the counter looks inside the suitcase. Of course, it goes through security there, but it doesn't at a hotel. And so, I think you know. For me, yes, I was, I was personally, um, I was very annoyed at the amount of tension that was um, paid to him by the media, especially like this, this wasn't the first time this happened. We knew that these, a lot of these folks and, and the, the profiles that had gone along with a lot of these shooters were to gain notoriety. And it's interesting, you know, we made a, I, I've never uttered, um, that man's name. And also I will say like, I, I'm, I feel tossed up if I think, you know, I, I, I do, I think people are born good. And I think in their first few years, you have these formative experiences, whether it's bummer things with parents or childhood trauma, whatever it might be that form formulates things moving forward. And for this person, you know, and for me as a journalist talking to the FBI was one of the most educational and, um, yeah helpful things because I had a lot of questions for them. If I'm honest, you know, there yeah. wasn't, there wasn't some big reveal for all of us where this guy had left a note and we knew what he was up to. And so, you know, what we learned through those interviews is this man grew up in an extremely um, abusive family. Um, his, his father was a, uh, a bit of a notarized criminal criminal who had had articles and, and things come out about him. And, you know, this, the, this is his role model, right? So he gets into a place where his health is diminishing. He identifies as a high roller. That's not really going well for him anymore. Um, and he sort of hatches, hatches this plan. And, and it truthfully, it, you know, it has been ruled as a, he, had, he had brought a gun up to that room specifically to take his life. He never intended to walk out of that hotel room. So the, the end cap final, you know, um, uh, investigation states that this was suicide wrapped in a mass shooting. But it's, it's so fascinating to me that, you know, there's, there's just logs on logs of, of him looking up how to become social media famous. So again, another clue that this is something that a lot of these individuals are doing. And so when we made the piece, and it's something I had really said to the beginning, right? Because I, I have a different perspective than the rest of my crew. So there is some education and they're all so, so gracious and want to learn. And our director was excellent at, at you know, really keeping these things on my, in mind and leaning on me to make sure I was helping to direct that conversation with the survivors. But resoundingly, you know, both myself and other survivors don't, we don't say his name. And when we put the piece together, we had talked about the stylistic choice of, of not doing that. And I'm, I'm deeply proud to say one of the things I'm most proud of is not only do we never utter his name in this piece, but we also remove his name and the name of other shooters from news clips that we used, which as a producer felt like the greatest stylistic win. And I hope it's an yeah. example to other people in media. But additionally, as a survivor, I've got to tell you, you know, not to uh, sound vindictive, but it, man, did that no. feel empowering to take something away from that person who took away some something from so many. 
I love that. And that I think is something that, that really when you're posing the question of ethical true crime, right, is you made a conscientious choice. Like we're not giving you any airtime, motherfucker. We're not giving you what you wanted. You don't, you don't get to meet your goals on my project. Like, sorry about it. You know, not, not on our watch. And, and uh, honestly, does the piece suffer for that? Probably not. No, and I'll never forget, and I, I will shout this out to my team, I, that I knew we weren't going to say the name. I, I didn't know how we were going to approach the news. And when the director and our post team sent that first cut to me, I, I, I didn't even have – like it, it was such a gift to yeah. recognize now how they viewed the situation – Mm-hmm. And the suggested stance that we were about, it was, I mean, it still sends like chills down my spine. It was, it was really, a. I, I, again, I just, I hope that other people see this and, and can follow the lead. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope so too. And I think it's really important to do that because what most of these people who are perpetrators are looking for is that attention and that grandiosity, you know? So why even give it to them? Because they're getting what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think the less we can service that as media and storytellers, hopefully the less likely it is to continue to be sought out, right? You know, there's people ask me all day long, you know, what, what can we, what can we do better? How can we change? How do we make these headlines stop? And the the truth is, and and we all know it, there's a whole lot of things that need to change, right? There's a lot of things. And I think people, people get um, up in their head about it, honestly, right? Because you're one person and these feel like big things. And I always, you know, for us as, as storytellers, that's a tangible thing that we can advocate for and take on individually. And additionally, for other people, I just say, you know, what you can do is you can be a a kinder neighbor, because the truth is, is people who feel loved and seen do not commit mass acts of violence. And, you know, that's why, and it's the thing that remained the same from that, that day, looking at the catalog to the day this project came out, that the tagline was always the light that was in the darkness. And, the little things mattered that night. Kindness and bravery mattered. And it didn't just change lives, it saved them. And it it seems so simplistic and so absolutely, you know, <laughs> rah-rah fairy tale, if you will, when I say it. But I, I love really is an answer to a lot of this. And we got to love each other a hell of a lot better as human beings if we ever expect anything to change. We've got to we've got to get out of our own crap and our own world and realize that a our actions affect other people but also we're all in this together you know we're like our we'll hurt we hurt together and we heal together and so if if again it's as we were saying earlier if nothing changes nothing changes and so it's it's really got to start at a ground level um and the other stuff will come then and and you know that it's important to fight for those things too but you know if people are looking for something tangible it's what i always said if this inspired one person to be kinder and to know that bravery matters then done so i have to ask this because i get asked this 
Did you get to meet Jason Aldean? So, so we did interview Jason. Um, again, we were um, we were in the middle of COVID. So, uh, uh, my my part of that was um, you know a, a, a virtual experience. But um, yeah, he. I gotta say, I I'm so I am grateful to him. So I don't want to say I'm not grateful, but the sentiment I feel um, about Jason participating in this project is. I don't want to prescribe how he felt, but I think, I think he sort of got put as a um, a center figure for this in a lot of ways, right? He and yeah. really what he was was a a guy who was up on a stage doing his job, and we were all having a great time because of it. You know, it could have happened at any show; it could have happened to any artist. And what I felt most glad for is that he. We didn't go to him and say, you know, you got to do this because people are looking to you or whatever it might be. We said, we want to know your survivor story. And we, we want you to step into that community. This isn't, you know, we're not, we're not asking you to do it for anyone else. We're, we want to know your perspective. And yeah. I think I think sometimes people forget that, like you know, it. Yeah, Jason Aldean's an incredible performer, and yes, he's someone we've identified as a, a celebrity, but he's also a human being—a human being who was there with a pregnant yeah. wife who was yes. ter- terrified, hiding in a bus with a friend and his wife, whose child was up on the thirty-second floor of the Mandalay Bay with their babysitter. I mean, it. It's it's ter- he's he's just a human being who also went through a traumatizing and terrifying experience and it was it was important for us that we approached him right because he has a a point of view that we didn't in some ways I I yeah I wonder if he had the worst view in the house I can't I can't imagine what it's like to for him to have looked out that night I can't I can't imagine what it's like to go back on stage and to look out into an audience I know gosh, I, I, the number of times I've been tripped out, someone's putting their hand in their pocket or doing something weird or like, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be him, but I'm so grateful that he allowed us, um, into his story that night. And so that people can understand his point of view too, because it was, it was different than ours. And, and we're all just looking to put the puzzle pieces together. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that yes, he, got to share about what it meant to be Jason Aldean that night, but he got to share about what it meant to be Jason Aldean, the survivor of the Route 91 Harvest Festival mass shooting, not Jason Aldean, the superstar who was on stage, who, you know, was the headliner. You know, it's, it, it, it felt, yeah. um, felt, felt good to have a, a conversation in that way. And I think important to have a conversation in that way. Yeah. Well, I, I thought of him as a survivor also after, yeah. because it's like, how could you, not go through that, not have trauma. And then he's also, um, he was in the Navy or the military or something like that. So he's already experienced like that combatic trauma. Yeah. You know, I, I, I myself am, uh, not, I've, I've not been enlisted or in the military, you know, for, I think probably a lot of us, although I know there was a ton of first responders and military present, you know, our, our comparison to what was going on that night was a movie or a video game. And 
you know, a lot of things yeah. get dispelled. You know, I, I think about what I first saw there all the time. You know, I, you get this idea in your head that because of movies and like I said, video games, that if you're shot in the head or the heart, you know, it's your, that's, that's it. There's not, there's no chance of survival. And when I tell you, I have now, I know now know several people who were shot in their face that night that are, so it's, again, it's just this education that I think in some ways we're able to provide for people as yeah. well. Um, but yeah, I, uh, it was, like I said, I was, I was glad to, that I was glad that our piece did get to include Jason's perspective um, as well as, you know, um, DJ Silver, who, who shared his story. Oh, yeah. Um, and as well as, uh, you know, Stormy Warren, who um, in a lot of ways, I think, I, I felt as if Stormy got to share some of the perspective of what it means to be a storyteller as he's, you know, a, a notable radio personality. And a, I think he, you know, he, he shared with us that he felt, initially, like, do I go back? And, you know, it's the show must go on. And he realized very quickly that the importance was to tell the truth and not to pretend like everything was okay. Cause guess what? It wasn't, you know, and it's far more abnormal to pretend like any of this is normal, um, than it is to just feel it out. And so I love that we got to have his perspective as a fellow storyteller, a part of this story. Um, and he has an incredible journey from that night, from, from his vantage point in, in the field. Um, but yeah, it, it's that, I think that's really, you know, to me, what was most important is, is those people are, have accomplished wonderful things, but ultimately what we wanted to provide as storytellers is different points of view from all angles that night. Um, so that we were, you know, really, sharing the story at large and what it meant for different, a different variety of people from first responders to hospital workers, um, survivors, performers, uh, and beyond. I love this. Well, I don't love the event, but I love that you yeah. did something amazing with it. Thank you. It's a very cathartic experience. And like I said, I can totally relate, but you know, we all have this, experience in common but it's not something that we want to be a part of but we are all part of the survivor squad it's true and i i always say you know what I, I don't really believe in healed i believe in healing as a active term um and it took me a really long took me a really long time i think to i don't know if, if own is the right word but to understand that being a survivor it wasn't just about surviving 11 minutes. It's about surviving second one and every second for the rest of your life. And I think with trauma, the best thing you can kind of do is learn wound management to know that some days it'll be a scar that you wear and other days some strange thing will happen and it'll be busting wide open and you just need to know when to put a bandaid on and how to do that and when to change it. And um, it's a it's a peculiar thing. I, I, I don't think any of us enter life thinking that that's, um, a word that will be given to us to describe our experience. But I, I also think how powerful, um, how powerful it can be when you do understand that it doesn't need to be your whole identity, but that it's a part of your story. And, and, and I think, you know, when you get pain, it, it, in some ways it plagues you or it pushes you. Right. And I think, I think you can turn, you can turn that pain into purpose. You can turn it into sometimes into art or, 
or give it, you know, it, turn it into a gift to whether it be someone else or, or to yourself. And it's, um, yeah, it's, I, I think as media, we get the, we get the supreme privilege to not only write the history books, but be the only people who can rewrite them. And I, I personally feel like, and I know we're, we're all just figuring out and we're seeing some ways that it's not being done super right. And we're uh, seeing ways that survivors haven't been honored in, in certain pieces. But I also think we're, we're seeing some ways that it is done right. And I think we are also, we're being made privy to hard stories. And guess what? Life isn't always sunshine and rainbows. That's, that's not it. And um, I think everybody is just really looking to be seen and heard out there. Um, and so when, when there's these stories, whether it's something you've been through or there's a little something in that person you can relate to, there's this connection that just, I don't know, it leaves you not feeling isolated and alone. And I, I think that's, that's also part of, you know, the, the further solution is, um, you know, positive mental health care. And I, I think for a lot of people, pieces like this can be a part of that. So, um, yeah, I encourage people to keep going after and, and, and go about it the right way, of course, but, but don't, you know, it's important to tell the good stories. Um, but it's also important to, to share the hard parts too, because that's just real life. Life is 50, 50. It's, it's good 50% of the time and it's not so good 50% of the time. And you don't get rainbows without rain, but it's important to, to share about the rain just as, as much as to share about the rainbow. That's, that's amazing. I feel like that's the most beautiful point to end on today. And where can we find you on social media and everything? Uh, you know, it's a really, it's a challenging social media handle. So it's at Ashley Hoff one, two, three on Instagram. Um, it, it is my birthday, the 23rd of January. So I do like to say that. So I'm just don't sound like the most boring person on the face of the planet. Um, and at Ashley Hoff on Facebook too. And I can, I can share those handles with you guys. Um, but more importantly, if uh, people do feel like they are at a place to, and do feel compelled to watch 11 minutes is streaming now on Paramount plus. And, um, you know, like I said, if, uh, if it's something you feel called to know it's there, um, if it's something you feel called to later, no, it'll still be there. Um, but I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful to those who have shared their feedback thus far and, uh, would love to know others, other people's feedback as they, you know, continue taking in this piece. I love that. Ashley Hoff, thank you so much for joining us here on Survivor Squad. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much. And thank you for, for what you guys do and the stories that you share and this really thoughtful conversation. Um, I think these things are important and I'm, I'm so glad to connect with you both. And, and thanks for sharing a little bit about your guys' experiences as well. I, uh, I don't take it lightly when someone chooses to share their stories and their hearts. So thank you for sharing a little bit with me. Well, thank you. It's a pretty heavy story. And I think, you know, talking to Ashley, it feels like you're, you're right in the, in it with her, you know, yeah. with the way she's describing everything in the moment, you know, <laughs> minute by minute, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, no, it's so heavy to go through something like that. And I can't even imagine because our stories are so different, but I can put myself in her shoes in a sense, mm -hmm. yeah. just by hearing her talk about it and go through all the emotions 
And I just can't even imagine what it's like to be in that situation running for your life in this, in a different sense, you know? I feel like with you and your perpetrator, it, it was one-on-one, -on -one, right? Yeah. This is nobody knew where the perpetrator was. Yeah. And, and they're up, they're up, you know, in the catbird seat, they're just picking off people. Yeah. It doesn't even, it doesn't feel fair. I think is the, it's not a fair fight. Right. And yeah. I think that's, that, that's the thing that really, really hits home. Yeah, I think so too. And I love the fact that she's a storyteller. Yeah. And so she was able to tell it to the best of her abilities. And also yeah. she did so much research. So it yeah. was so great having her on because she knew what went on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I commend her as a making a documentary about it as yeah. I did. And it's 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 a very cool thing. What a great episode and so honored to have her on. Yeah, so everyone should check out 11 Minutes if they haven't or if they have it in them to even watch it. Yeah, you know, absolutely. mental health is everything. Absolutely. We will have links to Ashley's uh, socials and a link to the documentary in the show notes of today's episode. Until next time, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. See ya. The Survivor Squad podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.